Welcome to POP, the sermon podcast for Peace Lutheran Church in Gehenna, with Pastors Doug Warburton and Tony Katko. So we've been in this series on Revelation for a few weeks now. Hopefully you've been having some fun, right? Doug's been having fun. Good. Um, But... We are going to look at today what I have been looking forward to, the beast and the harlot. So this is it, folks. This is the good stuff. Um, We're going to start with what everybody knows and recognizes from Revelation, the number from Revelation, 666. All right, so what is 666? What is it? The number, okay. Well, what is it from Revelation? The number of the beast. That's right, the number of the beast. So here's what Revelation says about this infamous number. Talking about the beast, he required everyone small and great, rich and poor, free and slave, to be given a mark on the right hand or on the forehead, and no one could buy or sell anything without that mark, which was either the name of the beast or the number representing his name. Wisdom is needed here. Let the one with understanding solve the meaning of the number of the beast, for it is the number of a man. His number is 666. Dun, 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 right? Now, this practice of giving a number and assigning that to a name is, was actually fairly common at this time. There's some graffiti of people doing this. Um, that has survived in Pompeii. And if you, it basically works that you have this code, you have a cipher, and each letter of the alphabet has a value. So it's something like A is one, B is two. It's not that, but it's something like that. And you add them all up together, and then you get the person's number for their name. So from this passage from Revelation, a lot of people have said, okay, so if you find the person whose name would add up to that number, 666, then that's it. This is the end. So I was doing a little research. And I found something a little disturbing. Now, I am in the right age that I might have watched this show, but I didn't with this purple dinosaur, Barney, which you might have thought was a harmless television show. I'm not so sure about that. So Barney, we can all agree, is a cute purple dinosaur. That's a title for Barney. Now, if you wanted to write this in Latin like the Romans would have, they don't write U's differently than V's, so you take all the U's and turn them into V's, so that's Barney's cute purple dinosaur title. And then if you wanted to get a number out of that, let's take out just the Roman numerals, get rid of all the other numbers, and here's what you're left with. And those, of course, stand for 100, 5, 5, 50, 500, 1, and 5. And if you add those together, what do you get? Six, six. Which means that Barney is the Antichrist and the end is near. Do you know how many slides it took me to explain this? Six! As if you needed any more proof, this is it! Or at least it was when he went off air in 2010. So Barney, the Antichrist, this is ridiculous, right? The Barney Armageddon is laughable. No one, well, some people on the internet, but mostly no one really believes in that, right? But I I bring this up because the Barney Armageddon, it actually shows us a couple important things about Revelation. First, because of all the symbols and all the metaphors in Revelation, if you're creative, you can make this mean whatever you want it to mean. 
You can fit the symbols in Revelation to whatever is going on at the time and whatever people you don't like at the time. People have done this throughout history. In every generation, people have connected leaders they didn't like, military leaders, political leaders, religious leaders with the beast in Revelation. Napoleon has been a candidate. Hitler has been a candidate. Ronald Reagan, because Ronald Wilson Reagan, six digits in each of his names, right? Obviously the Antichrist. Jimmy Carter, also the Antichrist. And all of these people have said are gonna signal the end of the world, the end times. That doesn't mean that that's actually what Revelation was talking about at all. The only way to really understand what the beast and all these other symbols are really talking about is to look at what was going on at the time and what those images would have meant to those Christians at the end of the first century. If you were here last week, Doug talked about the four horsemen of the apocalypse. And these four horsemen, they were describing the terrors that people were already facing at the time. The terrors of war and, and of infighting and economic struggle and sickness and death. Revelation shows us what is happening and then gives us hope here and now. So there's another thing the Barney Apocalypse shows us. It shows us that nobody takes all of Revelation literally. Nobody does. There are some Christians who are very insistent that certain parts of this vision you have to take literally. And there will be a literal earthquake. There's a literal lake of fire that's going to come. These events are going to be literal. But nobody takes the beast literally. Nobody thinks that this is going to show up. So here's how this beast is described. Then I saw a beast rising up out of the sea. It had seven heads and ten horns with ten crowns on its horns. And written on each head were names that blasphemed God. This beast looked like a leopard, but it had the feet of a bear and the mouth of a lion. And the dragon gave the beast his power and throne and great authority. I saw that one of the heads of the beast seemed wounded beyond recovery, but the fatal wound was healed. The whole world marveled at this miracle and gave allegiance to the beast. Nobody expects that at some point this is going to pop out of the clouds and start wreaking havoc. Even in the Left Behind series, the beast, the monster, is not literal. Everyone agrees that this is a symbol pointing to something else. But what is that something else? For John's original audience, it would have been pretty obvious that this monster and later the harlot of Babylon are ways of talking about Rome. Now, the most obvious example of this is what I pointed out in the first week of this series, this verse. The seven heads of the beast represent the seven hills. And if you know anything about history, the seven hills are what? Rome, because it was known as the city built on seven hills. This wasn't some secret code that was hard to decipher. Everyone knew it. It's like if you made this piece of art and you said, look, I put 50 stars there, and they represent the 50 states. Everyone would know exactly what you're talking about. That's what's going on here. Now, people in this time had to participate in the imperial cults, the worship of the emperor, so they would use worshipful terms to describe him. The Caesar is Lord, Caesar is Savior, Caesar is the Son of God, or sometimes even God himself. Now, if you were Jewish or Christian, that would be blasphemy to use those names. And so John says this, written on each head were names that blasphemed God, just like what was going on with the Caesars. 
Now at this time, the Roman Empire had stretched so far, it had control over a lot of Europe and into parts of Asia and even North Africa, which meant that the emperor had authority over every tribe and language that people in that part of the world could ever imagine. And so John says this about the beast. And he was given authority to rule over every tribe and people and language and nation. This was already happening. Now there was one emperor in particular that was really notorious, that did the worst atrocities against the early Christians. His name was Emperor Nero. Now he was gone by the time Revelation was written, but people still would have remembered his reign of terror. I mean, just like most of us didn't live through Hitler, but if you talk about the Nazis and the death camps, we know exactly what you're talking about. So Nero had Christians crucified. He had some of them torn apart by dogs. He had some of them burned alive. It was a terrible time. And John says this about the beast. And the beast was allowed to wage war against God's holy people and to conquer them. Now, Nero's rule ended when he killed himself with a knife. But after that, there were rumors that he had been sighted again, which is crazy, but it's, it's like what you would see in a tabloid of some ce dead celebrity has been sighted, right? Maybe not everyone actually believes it, but there were rumors about Emperor Nero. And so John references one of those rumors about Nero. I saw that one of the heads of the beast seemed wounded beyond recovery, but the fatal wound was healed. So at this point, everyone knows, okay, we're talking about Rome, we're talking about the tyranny of people like Nero, and then we get to the number of the beast. And if you take Caesar Nero, and you write it in Hebrew, and you assign all of those numerical values to it, you get the number 666. You see, once you understand what was going on at the time of Revelation, it's fairly obvious that John was describing what was happening in the world around him. He might ask, okay, but why use all this weird dragon monster stuff? Why not just talk plain about it? But actually, we have an art form that does the same thing today. All you need to do is look at a political cartoon that's engaging in satire. Think about it. I mean, political cartoons, you might see a donkey or an elephant doing some crazy things. We all know, okay, that must mean the Democratic Party, the Republican Party is doing something crazy, and that's what it's talking about. And that satire, the cartoons, they have this power to take what might be just kind of a boring policy issue and make it come to life. They make you have this visceral, emotional reaction to it. The graphic images in Revelation, they do the exact same thing. They're meant to make us look at the world differently and have a reaction to it. So I want to show you an image that bridges the gap between that ancient satire and more modern-day satire. This is a political cartoon that was drawn by an English artist, Thomas Rowlandson, in 1808. It's not long after kind of the downfall of Napoleon. And there's the beast from Revelation with all heads. And one of the heads is severed, mostly cut off. And that is the face of Napoleon. And there's a woman there that's catching some of the crowns, including the crown of France. And underneath her, you might not be able to see it, but it's written the word hope. Like the fall of Napoleon is giving the people at the time hope. Now it's obvious what... That means, right, the artist is saying, I don't care if you like Napoleon, here's what he's really like. 
All of his conquests to try and conquer the world, they make him into just another head of this monster of tyranny in the world. And when tyrants are in power, it can seem like they're unstoppable, like nothing is going to get rid of this. But they're not. The beasts always are defeated in the end. Now, under all this satire in the book of Revelation, talking about the rulers and the empires and the powers of the world, there's this underlying assumption that we all get a choice. Who are we going to serve? Who are you going to worship? Are you going to worship the beast or are you going to worship the lamb? Do we put our trust in human conquest, in human growth, in human power, or do we put our trust in God's power that looks like love and sacrifice? Who are you going to worship? So we've looked at the beast. I want to look at the woman who is in league with this beast. So this is from chapter 17. So the angel took me in the spirit into the wilderness. There I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast that had seven heads and ten horns, and blasphemies against God were written all over it, so same beast. The woman wore purple and scarlet clothing and beautiful jewelry made of gold and precious gems and pearls. In her hand, she held a gold goblet full of obscenities and the impurities of her immorality. A mysterious name was written on her forehead, Babylon the Great, mother of all prostitutes and obscenities in the world. I could see that she was drunk, drunk with the blood of God's holy people who were witnesses for Jesus. I'm going to show you a Roman coin. This is one side of the coin. The other side was the emperor, Caesar Vespasian at the time. This was from about the year 70. And this is an image of the woman of Rome, right? The goddess and uh, personification of what life in Rome was all about. And you can see she's reclining there on seven mounds, which represent seven hills, right, of Rome. And it's hard to tell in here, but she's wearing this, like, long, flowing dress. So it's like this nice, expensive, elegant clothing. And it's hard to tell, but in her left hand there, there's, she's holding a short sword. But she's not holding it like she needs to use it. It's just kind of there. Yes, I've got this power, but I don't need to use it. I'm nice and comfortable. So this was on a denarius that was printed around the year 70. So people would have seen this image all the time. This is what Rome wanted to portray themselves as being like. This is what life is like in the empire. It's classy, it's elegant, it's civilized, it's good. And so John takes this image and he makes it obscene. Instead of the seven hills, you have the seven heads of this beast that she's on. And yes, this woman of Rome, she's wearing nice expensive clothing, but then when you take a closer look, you can see that she's also drunk. And she's drunk on the blood of innocent people. And in her hand, instead of the short sword is this cup. I love that the English translators are very polite about this. They say it's full of obscenities or abominations. It really says it's full of you know what. It's a cup full of sewage. That's what she's holding in her hand there. And it says her name is Babylon the Great, mother of all prostitutes. In other translations, you'll see the, the whore of Babylon or the harlot of Babylon. I have to admit, I, I kind of feel weird even saying like whore in church. That feels weird to me because it's a 
kind of degrading term, isn't it? And, and we know that prostitution then and now is complicated. And sex work, which is often slavery, right? It's not just this moral failing on behalf of the workers. It's more complicated than that. But here's the best explanation I've heard as to why John would use this image, the prostitute of Babylon. For John, prostitution takes the most intimate aspect of a human relationship and turns it into nothing more than a business transaction. It's a human being who is turned into a body that is sold for someone else's enjoyment. And John says, this is what Rome, this is what empire, this is what human kingdoms really look like. It's all about two things, profit and pleasure. And so it's the people at the top getting more profit and getting more pleasure. And it may look good from afar, but when you get up close, it is really ugly, just like this. It doesn't matter who is exploited and dehumanized in the process. Think of how we still talk about the economy today. And we put human beings' worth by their, how much they can produce and how much they can consume. And so if we give our whole lives, if our purpose in life is to serve the endless growth of the economy, Revelation says, look, what you're really doing is serving this drunken prostitute on a monster. That's what you're giving your life for. Now in Revelation, the Babylon the Great is not actually conquered by God. God doesn't need to do that. It's the beast that turns on her. The beast takes care of Babylon. Now, remember, the beast and this woman, they're both personifying Rome, which is a way of saying evil tends to self-destruct eventually. If you have this endless lust for power and lust for more, it is never sustainable. It doesn't last. We can just look at the empires throughout history and see that, right? These large empires that try and grow endlessly, at some point, it doesn't keep going, they either collapse or they slowly diminish in power. There's a reason why every generation has been able to connect current events with what's going on in Revelation. They are supposed to connect. They are connected. But these images, they don't signal the end of the world. They're supposed to make us look at our world differently. Take a hard look at our loyalties. Who do we really serve? Who do we give our lives to? Do we worship the beast or do we worship the lamb? On Revelation, there are some images of the heavenly throne room where there's all this worship of God and singing praises to God and the lamb. We get a lot of liturgy and hymns and songs from those chapters in Revelation because it's God and the lamb that ends up having the final victory. And as much as I would like to say, you and I can take down the beast, we can't. You and I can't just topple all the tyrants in the world and turn around all the oppressive governments. We can't end all the prejudice and hate and injustice and greed in the world. We can't do it. We can make an impact, And we do, and of course that matters, but evil will still be around. We can't get rid of the beast. It's God that ends up doing that. See, what we can do right now, every day, is we can worship that God who will not let that evil 
rule forever. Because in the end, it's God and the Lamb that has the final victory. Amen.